Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Mike Mitchell. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of June 12th, 2023. All right, Mike, well, I'm going to start off with, you know, one of our favorites, and uh, Lee always touches on these, um, but we did get another DFER report. Yep. yep. Uh, it's a, it's a long one. Yeah, it's a lot going on. It came out today, even. But the most interesting thing about this report is I always try to associate like what's the motivation as far as the intrusion. And it was a true bot being deployed that led to cobalt strike and um, flawed grace or also known as barbed wire, grace wire type of malware. And then they exfiltrated data, but then they did a uh, wiper that basically removed the master boot record. So I thought it was interesting that they would steal data and then do a wiper because it didn't seem like it'd be an extortion type follow-on if you're going to be kind of creating that type of disruption because you lose a lot of rapport with your victims that way. So, you know, maybe they really just wanted that data and really want to disrupt, you know, the business or whatever it is that they were targeting, um, almost kind of like you would assume with uh, IP stealing intellectual property and just trying to get an advantage type of approach. Um, but there were a couple things I wanted to call out that, you know, as I read through these reports, I'm always thinking of ways to think about behaviors um, that you may see. So I might not hit everything in the report, but I'm going to hit some things that just kind of stood out to me. I think you make a really good point around the um, why why this kind of intrusion plus some of the behaviors happened. Um, was there any identification on the type of data that was, you know, exfil outside of them doing the, you know, the wiper? Um, against these hosts, or is it truly just kind of their their TTPs, their tactics, the the things they do without any real kind of explanation based on the affected customers? Yeah, they didn't really touch um, on much in the attribution section. They kind of um, mentioned the lace tempest or the clop extortion operations and stuff that happened recently with the move it stuff but i didn't quite understand the ties to that and it obviously is a very different type of um intrusion from the things that i understand from those so i i don't know what the tie is there but yeah it was kind of interesting they didn't mention the specific data that was being stolen that i recall sure i mean i could sometimes glean if it's a nation state actor or kind of the the intrinsic you know the psychology behind why they were doing the things they're doing but you made a really right. good point that you know you want some rapport if you're trying to extort and get money out of somebody you don't want to immediately wipe their environment ahead of you taking the data so um interesting kind of uh attack chain face here so sorry sorry to interrupt it's just no yeah you're good the the one thing that uh always stands out to me is when you see um non executable programs from like your programs directory from install programs or from the system directories on windows spawning cmd or you know in other instances w script and things like that which create further execution in other ways um, that's a common behavior that stands out in this case they had a uh, what looked to be a 
like Acrobat Reader, but it wasn't really anything to do with it. It changed the icons, and it was an executable that then launched to CMD. Um, so that is something that I, th I think stands out as a kind of an obvious thing to look into uh, if you're able to look for those types of behaviors within your environments. Uh, the other thing I like seeing, and I always call this out, I think, every time it comes up, but it's the human error that comes up. Um, mm -hmm. And one, I like it because it kind of humanizes the attacks because it really is human-driven. And it also sometimes, for me, shows the difference between was it just malware that was running across doing these activities or were there actual hands-on keyboard? Because it seems like when there's more human error, you know, we all been on the command line and mistyped a command or something uh, and caused those problems. So it makes me feel like there is live interaction with this type of intrusion, too, when you see that. The other thing that, you know, I always look at, and I'm, I'm kind of been thinking about how would I address this problem, and it depends on what tools you have, but, you know, you see PowerShell-based attacks, and, you know, you look at some of the obfuscation that a lot of people use, and one of the obfuscation techniques, it seems to be store a bunch of different commands and parts of commands and things and variables in PowerShell, and then try to stitch them all together, right? And... It, you know, from a, I code in PowerShell for some, you know, things that I like to get accomplished for automation and whatnot. And I feel like if you were to look at the content length and then looked at the number of dollar signs, there'd probably be a ratio there where you can safely say that this is not normal programming and it's more like obfuscation. Uh, because, you know, you see, if you're not familiar with PowerShell, if you have dollar sign and then some sort of string of words or letters, I mean, that's usually a variable. And if you see a bunch of those just constantly being thrown together within a single line um, in a very short amount of space, that kind of sounds like obfuscation. And in this case, that's what it, that's what it was. And it kind of stands out when you look at the code they provide. Yeah, that's a really good point. And is there another, and again, it's been a minute since I've uh, programmed in PowerShell, but do you have to signify the plus to join those two variables together? Yeah, so it depends on how you want to use it. So in some cases they do plus, sometimes they do plus equals if they're going to concatenate some things together. But yeah, it's you can kind of do a few different ways to join things that I've seen. Uh, but just that presence, right? Like, you know, if you just see the slew of variables kind of in a single line within a short space, uh, you know, it, it usually, <laughs> I don't know the most of the practical use cases for that. Um, and if you were able to just even pull back a, a sample when you're looking for something like that, it's very easy based on the variable names and know if it's legitimate too. Yeah, like looking at the entropy of some of that code, right? And so typically if you're programming in a programming language, you're not concatenating or joining a bunch of variables together across the board to do something. So even looking into, you know, if it's written in Python, if it's written in PowerShell, C++, looking at whatever keywords are available for those Python or excuse me, um, programming languages that concatenate or join and if it's related to variables, right? So that's a, that's kind of a really interesting way to, uh, potentially flag some malicious code. So that's really cool, um, concept to think about. Yeah. And there's another thing that stood out to me and that was a lot of their PowerShell code or not a lot, but some of their PowerShell code they were storing within the registry. Um, and I always find it interesting. There was a, um, a, a typical kind of like if you had hands-on machines or you pulled machines not necessarily did things from logging um there was one approach that someone brought up to me early in my career about yeah if you were able to query registry keys and just look for lengths where if their registry key was more than say 200 characters uh it 
might be an encoded script or a script or something stored in registries stuff to look for. I always see there's some things to exclude from that. Um, but it was kind of a sign where most keys usually aren't huge um, unless you're trying to store scripts and things in there. So uh, mm -hmm. that's something that kind of stood out. Uh, granted, it's not like the easiest depending on your tooling to go after that unless it's a proactive approach uh, where you're just profiling machines. I think Kanza is a great example of trying to do something like that. Um, and then the other thing that stood out, which was interesting to me was, you know, they were kind of abusing CMD to basically plug their code into it and access in the process, but they were using non-standard flags or arguments for CMD. And, you know, this is something that's interesting. A lot of times we look at, Hey, if we're looking for a tool, we look for specific arguments that are commonly used with that tool. So we can say, Hey, this might be that tool. Well, this is kind of the inverse approach, right? Where you have a tool that may commonly be used in your environment, but they're non-standard or non-existent flags are being leveraged. Um, so that was kind of an interesting approach. And I think they even uh, talked about some Sigma they, they were going to provide for that to kind of help identify that for this specific use case. Um, but it was kind of an interesting idea to like, like think of things like that, that you know um, attackers like to commonly use, mm -hmm. tools that are commonly used in your environment to kind of look for those outliers that way. Um, and then they did a interesting privilege ex privilege escalation, and that was they abused the SCM behavior. So they basically stopped the spooler service before deleting the registry key associated with the required privileges um, for that specific service, and then they restarted the service so they can inject into it with a newly created process. Um, so that was kind of a an interesting thing to basically, if you're going to abuse something. Um, stopping it and then restarting it mm -hmm. kind of behavior or even look for if you actually know what registry keys could be associated like for instance this one they call it out and then you can start monitoring for those types of things but just like that behavior um kind of was an interesting thing um and then something that i always see a lot they called it out here there was a scheduled task and the name was you know uh backslash two mm -hmm. and i don't know what it is about uh attackers or malware authors or whatever but they sometimes just get to the point where they name their files executables so be it one to two characters long um and i don't that's not a standard naming convention by any normal means but you just see it because maybe it's supposed to be temporary or whatever but those are i think easy things to key off of because it's not standard for pretty much most of the system so um, those always stand out to me because it kind of ties that human element where you're just like, I just need this to run and I don't want to like name it something that might give it away. So I'm just to be simple and just name it A or something like that. And then the other thing I don't normally see when I think about standard IT behavior is running loops from the command line. Now, I'm not saying there wouldn't be examples or someone's troubleshooting or trying to you know do something, but um, they had a lot of discovery going on where they're actually doing for loops straight from the command line. Um, and so that would, I guess, stand out as like, what is really going on? Why is someone trying to loop through a bunch of things uh, manually that way versus, you know, having scripts or things run to do that for you? And then obviously the, the kill disk that they used for deleting the master boot record, that was just the big surprise end that I didn't expect. But those are, yeah, those are kind of the highlights that stood out to me. Yeah, no, I think you called a lot of really interesting things and in, in talking about you know, the difference between, and I was kind of bring this up hunting against IOCs, detection engineering. I think their, their diagrams that they have with the execution workflow is really cool. Cause you can kind of see everything to the far right of the diagram, anything that 
kind of pivots off to the very far right of any one of those sections is the IOCs. Um, everything ahead of that is really kind of the behaviors, uh, you know, associated with the execution chain phase. So looking at that and thinking about it from a, um, a hunting perspective, if you can reliably hunt for the behaviors, uh, kind of in the middle of that specific diagram, uh, looking for things like, um, the runtime broker creating a copy of itself. You talk about the pool, uh, spooler service being restarted the kind of the loops within kind of the registries now they did the task created uh you'll reliably kind of see that activity from cobalt strike and flawed grace um because things like their ctu ip address their watermark uh the domains can shift right so you're really missing a lot of the activity if that's all you ever look for it's kind of those inners that result in those in art artifacts so I thought they did a really good job of visualizing the value of hunting in an environment and not having to rely just on the, the indicator of the compromise or kind of the detection specific aspects of these type of threats. But no, that was a great article. Anything else you want to touch on before we move on? No, I think that was everything I was going to call out um, that stood out to me. So let's move on to what you got. Cool. So we're going to start with the, um, the data breach for the Minnesota um, Department of Education. Uh, this is also tied to kind of the move IT um, hot button topic that's been kind of in everybody's mind over the past, uh, you know, week or so. Um, and so it looks like they were hit by that particular vulnerability um, and targeting files that related to, I think, 95,000 students. Um, and it looked like everything was outside of the kind of the financial information, but more about just kind of PII around those students. I think they even called out particularly the ones placed in foster care. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, from a data perspective, the attacker is like, I'm not sure what they're actually going to use with that data. Uh, I'm sure there's some nefarious stuff they can figure out with that. But, uh, you know, I, I think it was more just centered around kind of a spray and pray around, look, this is a major vulnerability. They realized, you know, how many organizations were particularly affected. Somebody got into the Minnesota IT uh, infrastructure and pull this data out. Um, and it might've been, that's as far as they could get, uh, within that environment. Um, but, uh, it doesn't seem like it was a targeted type of a, an event, but I think with these type of events, we're going to start hearing a lot more of this, especially centered around the move IT vulnerability as it affected, uh, I think they said 1700 organizations plus I personally had never heard of that software, never used it. Um, didn't realize how many organizations were using it. Um, but you know, we've been talking about it a lot internally, um, of course, figuring out the hunts, uh, a lot of organizations did a really good job of getting a lot of information out early on centered around, um, that particular threat and vulnerability. And then of course, once that is, uh, you know, you, you get in through initial access, you get into that vulnerability, how you, um, pivot and move around an environment will kind of change between the organizations and over time. So again, this is going to be a uh, probably consistent focus for more, most organizations until they can kind of patch that front end side of this. So, um, and I know you've dealt with this a little bit, Scott. So anything that kind of sticks out to this article, but I really just wanted to talk about this will not be the last one we see. Um, there's a couple of things. One, again, um, organizations, you know, will be affected, but it was really weird the data that they pulled out and kind of, Correlating now with that last article we talked about, what are the actual motivations of these 
these actors. So anything that you kind of gleaned from this article? Yeah, the two there's two things that stood out right away, and that was you know they talked about 95,000 students' information being affected, but only 24 files are actually compromised. So it's just interesting to, right. to think about like how you manage your data if you have a, enough records of sensitive things and very few th and very few files or a file that it has a lot like do you do anything additional or is it kind of fall into like a standard sensitive versus not sensitive buckets because obviously i mean it, when you think about losing 24 files it seems like that's so small but obviously it was the right files right and then the other thing that it was interesting to me is i remember when i was learning about like what information held the most value when it came to if you compromise someone's information and health records were always near the top. And, and I was thinking like, Oh yeah, I mean, you can steal someone's identity or whatever, but it was more associated to pharmaceuticals where if you got the right health records where you had access to specific um, scripts potentially that were written for customers to get your hands on um, whatever drug is desired at the time, it was a way to get access to drugs you might be able to profit off of. And it was kind of like another way of looking at, oh, maybe that's why the healthcare data seems to be more of a target because there's a whole other, other than, you know, identity theft or things like that, you might be able to get other um, monetary gains from it. And when I think of the foster care, what kind of stood out to me is I know in, there's a lot of government support for obviously the foster care system. So you bring in foster children, you get monetary money from the government that helps kind of help you support those kids. Those kids get free services as far as like college and things like that. So there, I wonder if there really is kind of a monetary angle there, if you're able to impersonate or, you know, you know, claim or whatever it is for a, a foster student. Um, so mm -hmm. maybe that could be a motive. I, I don't know. It just kind of stood out to me. And then the other thing that is interesting to me is, you know, seems like with this type of vulnerability, it seems what, what I think, you know, typically happens when you see vulnerabilities hit something, especially a product people aren't very familiar with. It means that product probably hasn't been scrutinized a lot too. And we're starting to see more and more vulnerabilities associated with the product because now people are starting to turn an eye to it and see, well, what else is there or trying to prove things, they find other things out. Um, so I feel like there's going to be kind of that daisy chain effect that happens when you have an unknown product become, you know, headline news. We'll probably see more in other types of attacks or things that people have to address. So if you're addressing this as a, uh, you have to res respond, manage, fix, patch, whatever, expect to put some more time into this as more things come out and kind of keep your ear close to the ground would be my best advice there. Yeah, that's a really good, really good point. Yeah, it's just, again, it's just, it's interesting to to see the report. 24 files, 95,000 students, but the data wasn't really usable, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, so um, that was a quick one. Let's move on to the next topic. Yeah, so um, I saw this on the Hacker News, and it was called the Cyber Criminals Using Powerful Bat Cloak Engine to Make Malware Fully Undetectable. So Bat Cloak was kind of a malware obfuscation. Um, they call it FUD, Fully Undetectable. And it was shared on GitHub back in September of 2022 and then was removed, which kind of stinks for two reasons, right? Because like as defenders, we can then use this to learn from things, but obviously they thought the impact would be worse because it was a very effective way to get around antivirus or EDRs and things like that. Mm -hmm. But basically what was interesting was it, it just does a almost like a process chain in order to 
store, deploy, and execute um, whatever malware that you're you're trying to use. And it's apparently really good. It's pretty easy to get your malware to be obfuscated this way. But it starts with like a batch loader, then it goes to a PowerShell loader, then it goes to like a C sharp stub loader. EXE that starts looking for like anti-virtual machines, anti-debugging and stuff. So it checks all those things too. And then it goes to like de decompressing, de uh, and decrypting and executing the actual payload. So, you know, from a behavior perspective, I think this is interesting because, you know, a lot of um, antivirus, they still, they do heuristic stuff, which is still kind of like joint signature the way I look at it, but they do signature-based detections. Um, and that's how they can do things very fast and they can be um, high fidelity. Um, but that's why we differ when we talk about behaviors. And this is like a prime example to me when I look at it is looking at the behavior. Like they describe an execution chain. And if you're able to kind of understand, well, what are the components of that execution chain and what would be the, the path of that happening? Like what would it look like if you had a batch loader launching PowerShell, then launching an EXE? Like those are things you might be able to look for to try to identify this behavior or see what if this even mimics anything close to what just normally runs in your environment so you know you know how well you can look for this so obviously very cool tool for obfuscation um mm -hmm. but i think as that's kind of our job in cybersecurity is to understand things and looking at this and understanding it not at a very deep level because i've only really looked at the surface um but from this just from the surface level it looks like this is very identifiable um, just depending on your approach and what tools you have available. So, um, but I thought it was interesting. So, yeah. And I, I think the thing that kind of, again, as we always related to hunting, it was really easy to kind of obfuscate if you're looking for code signing hashes, you know, those kind of easily identifiable attributes from these type of, uh, files. Um, but this 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 concept and this methodology have been around for a long time, right? right. Um, Anti-virtual machine, anti-debug, uh, AMSI bypass, um, for those different uh, loaders and EXEs. So, yeah, I mean, uh, of course, those open source tools, we talk about this a lot. You know, if they're used for the, the research and development, they're open source. People are going to figure out how to use it for, for bad reasons. But again, just understanding that these things are available out there uh, at least allows you to understand how to, to track this type of stuff down if it's available or seen in your environment or if you're particularly, um, you know, vulnerable to these type of attacks or or in a hunting process or in an IR process trying to trying to track down some of these, these type of things. So yeah. uh, I'm sure this is getting passed around in those, those forums um, that a lot of these malicious actors use, um, even though it was taken down. Yeah. And I, I kind of think of it, you know, when, if you look at the history of any type of malware, it seems like, or, or, uh, an approach to like, if someone just discovers how to, you know, do privilege escalation or execution or whatever it is, and they have a method of doing it, they pretty much will use that method indefinitely. And then when it gets identified, then the next thing they always do is they keep trying to use the same method and figure out how they can obfuscate it so that it won't be stopped. Mm -hmm. So it's like the natural chain of behavior or maturity that typically happens is here's some new novel thing. So nothing will detect it. And they're like, Ooh, now we know about it. So now we detect it. And like, okay, well, we're going to use it still. We're just going to obfuscate it in as many ways possible until people get smart enough to either identify the obfuscation or, 
you know, kind of get around to the problem better. And then that kind of goes away or a new method comes out that's even easier or better to use. So, I mean, that's just the natural transition and this kind of just plugs in. I, I see it being like the easier mode for that. Sure. Uh, but obfuscation is kind of an easy concept and there's a lot of other free open source things out there that help with that. So, um, yeah, this doesn't bring any fear to me. It just, it's interesting to highlight that, uh, yeah, this is a common practice. Yep. And they're already probably working on the next thing, like you mentioned. Um, but of course, humans are lazy. So least path of least resistance. So we're going to, you know, try to reuse the things that are already in the wild to, to make ourselves successful. Cool. Yeah. That's all I got. Awesome. So I got one that was <laughs> really interesting to me. Barracuda had a, uh, a high severity vulnerability um, that it will... A couple wanted that had been patched but exploited since October 22, and they they patched it a few times. I think there was an additional vulnerability that came out, but I think this was the first time at least I have heard a company ask the the uh, people using their product just to replace the hardware. And so this is centered around an email security gateway. Um, and so CSO Online had this article talking about the the dates and times and the, the, the path to where we got now, but Barracuda actually asked customers to replace the product, the actual hardware. And so if these are deployed in a data center or in offices, these organizations have, you know, an actual piece of hardware doing the email gateway, email security gateway side. It's pretty interesting that they could not figure out the patch. And so, you know, if you know this vulnerability is out there, if exposed and you have to wait for hardware to come in, and there's nothing you can do from a engineering or security side without taking that down offline. Um, I'm guessing they're probably going to have to end up, they're probably going to end up riffing, right? They're, those customers are probably going to look elsewhere um, mm -hmm. because of that lead time to get the hardware, get it installed, get it reconfigured. Um, and you kind of lose that visibility across all your email, um, especially with all the other things going on with the, you know, exchange vulnerabilities earlier on this year. Um, it's, it's pretty impactful from a security perspective, if you lose that type of visibility. Um, and then lower down in the article, they talk about some of the different strands of malware that were used to allow for that backdoor access into the organization. Um, but really interesting, I, you know, I, I hadn't heard of uh, an organization just say replace your hardware before. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Anything kind of that, that comes top of mind for you? Yeah. So one, I always think of things like this, like imagine not only the, the the burden on the vendor that's got to be like, oh, shoot, we, I don't want to say like screwed up, but we have to solve this big problem that isn't easy for them to solve because they need to basically produce something quickly enough and get to all their customers and respond effectively. And then you got all these customers that are like, well, we can't really do anything and just wait until we can get everything. And then we have to do all this stuff, you know, immediately um, kind of approach, which, you know, that's a huge burden on both sides and they have to work really well together to even achieve success there. Um, but I have, like, I don't want to misname the vendor, but I feel like in my career I've come across, and maybe when I was back in the military, but devices where they were just old enough and it got to the point where, yeah, the only way to really truly fix the issues mm -hmm. was to replace it. Um, and then I do know we were testing or not we not being myself but a group of people i know that were testing field devices right and it wasn't so much like the it security but the physical physical security side where you know kind of when you think about car hacks right where 
hey, someone figured out how to access something because the hub, you know, in the entertainment system in the car was connected to these other things and they gain access. Like it was similar to something like that, but for like more of a field device that, you know, was associated with the business. So, you know, you, yeah, what do you do? And, you know, obviously we found this before we were going to deploy something out in production. So we're like, yeah, until you guys can figure out how to manage this, this problem of access where they can get too much access by someone just walking up to something out in the middle of nowhere, you know, that was an easy fix because we got ahead of it. But I mean, just like the car hacks, like I was saying, there's, there's some vulnerabilities that the only way to really fix them is like literally like replace it. And I, and I think right, that's a great right. example looking at that. Right. Um, it just comes down to like, what is the overall risk likelihood? Um, the car hacking, obviously there's a lot of access required, but when you talk about a, an email gateway that, you know, is going to be seeing traffic on the edge of the internet, you know, that's obviously a bigger likelihood. So much bigger problem, but yeah, so I think these things come up. It's just, they don't normally get the attention like they, like this does, but yeah, just a bad problem in general to have for both sides. So it's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, 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 you're right. I mean, you know, thinking about what an email security gateway does, you know, maybe it's a hardware manufacturer or a chipset or something in there that's, I, I didn't dive into the actual vulnerability, but yeah, I don't know either. to have to replace the whole piece of hardware, uh, it sounds like there might have been maybe a supply chain, a supply chain issue with what they were using inside that hardware that's yeah. causing the issue that they were trying to patch out. Right. So maybe it was a chipset or something that had an innate vulnerability that they couldn't patch around. So um, I'm sure that's not the only time that's ever happened. Just it kind of just jumps up with this particular case because it's tied to kind of security and email security gateway. And, and, and yeah, it's it it on that edge. Right. That's always a, a coming. You, you, what gets a lot of attention is when you see all the firewall vendors that have vulnerabilities. Right. Because they're usually the, the thing that sits at the edge in the forefront. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. I think I was there for that one. Super quick. Just thought it was really interesting. So yeah, I'll jump to this next one. Um, this one, you know, I thought was really interesting and it was, uh, I, I saw it through security week. Um, and then I kind of pivoted over to, um, the obsidian security blog about it, but this, uh, security week article was SAS ransomware attack hit SharePoint online without using a compromise compromise endpoint. Um, so I switched over to some of the original reporting on it, and that was the Obsidian security blog. And what was interesting here was basically uh, the attacker got access to a Microsoft Global Admin uh, service account credentials. Uh, the service account didn't have 2FA enabled um, and was publicly, and you can leverage it publicly through the internet. Uh, so you can just imagine already have that kind of access you can kind of do whatever they want and uh in this aspect they're a ransomware group um they are they're making ties to i think the omega group which they've kind of been out there but not as prominent as a lot of other groups like even some of the articles i looked up it just seemed like they were discovered because they were using the dot omega you know extension um to kind of make themselves unique but basically um with that access they did see where that it was accessed from a uh, host provided by VD Shinra.ru, so like you know a, a Russian type domain. So obviously the IP geolocation access was kind of outside of the norms. And then that compromised account, they created a uh, a new AD user that they actually called Omega in this instance, um, which right. you know kind of a 
Right. Um, but one of the things that was kind of interesting is the department and street address fields are, are the uh, locations or the means for communication. So the department had the their HTTPS you know, mega connect dot biz, you know, with a specific good associated use. So you can kind of see uh, the information about the breach from their perspective to you. And then they have an onion address and the street address for how to communicate, uh, which is kind of an interesting um, thing. But they did also use a couple tools with this. Um, so obviously with this access, they had administrator capabilities across multiple SharePoint sites. And they had over 200 admin removal operations occur within a two-hour period, um, which is so pretty quick when they pulled everything. But they pulled hundreds of files by the VPS endpoint by leveraging SP pull. So I'm assuming it's SharePoint pull. It's a publicly available Node.js module that basically really simplifies downloading SharePoint files. So if you think about, if you've ever used SharePoint, I don't want to say it's not user-friendly, but <laughs> I've run into that. it not being user-friendly. You can definitely say that. So... You imagine if I wanted to pull down files from SharePoint uh, manually, it probably would take some time. So I think it's very realistic to look at detections or views into massive pulls of files down from SharePoint. Because if someone's found an easy way, you want to salute them and say, hey, how do we do this? Because it seems nice. Or you want to say that doesn't seem right. We want to stop that. But then one of the other things they did, which was interesting, was the uploading. So obviously when they pulled down files, they wanted to make sure that uh, people knew that they were successfully pulling data down. And they uploaded thousands of, they, the text file was called preventleakage.txt uh, to the SharePoint to kind of draw attention to the data that was exfilled. Um, and they used a GitHub tool called GOT, um, which is publicly available uh, Node.js library for simplifying the HTTP request to basically push a bunch of files to SharePoint. Um, so that was another thing. When you look at like those massive up and downloads, um, I know there's some file transfer things, especially when you're migrating, you know, new things in SharePoint or try to build new sites that happens. But um, those are some operations you might want to pay attention to. But the thing I did like that they kind of called out uh, was kind of the opportunities to detect things. Um, and they're, you know, typical things that you see with any kind of cloud-like resources, you know, IP geolocation stuff. It's typically good to just kind of have a good narrow view for what that should be. And then the you know they call it impossible travel. I I like and hate this because I know there's some shortcomings sometimes, um, but it's a good thing to at least have the data so that if you do see suspicious activity, you can tie it back to that. But basically, you know, if someone logs in um, somewhere and then logs in someone further away, that would be like there's no way they can get there within an hour, kind of thing. That's kind of what that's yep. looking at. Then a service accounts not really intended for you know regular interactive logins. So when you see service account behavior that appears to be interactive based on like session length and things like that, or you know I don't know what other types of log types they they log for that because I haven't looked in that data specifically. But I mean there's got to be something to determine if interactive versus um, other types of logons. Windows is pretty good at, or Microsoft's good at that in general. Um, and then, you know, their, you know, their example of IOCs to look for is because they use Omega a lot in the naming conventions for different properties within new accounts. They're like, look for Omega. I mean, yes, you could do that. That would rely on that for the, the best detection, but it's just a good thing if you're, you know, trying to make an easy blow to their mark. But, uh, but yeah, it was just an interesting attack because it wasn't something you traditionally see. Most ransomware, I mean, yes, they get access to credentials, but they usually get a foothold in an environment. And because we're dealing with kind of cloud-based resources, it's different, right? It's more credentials you're trying to figure out how to protect 
um, because the exposure is kind of already there. So, so yeah, thought it was an interesting uh, case. I mean, uh, the first part of that article is global admin service account with no two-factor MA, uh, MFA or 2FA on there. And so from that point, I mean, you're pretty much screwed, right? But it, it is interesting. One of the things that, you know, they, they called out and created a new ADA username, Omega. And of course, that could be a way to kind of blame a different actor group. Pretty easy just oh, to yeah. a bunch of Omega or Zero Omega or take eyes away from maybe the group that is actually doing the work. Um, and then to call out for event leakage all over the place. Did they conclude that this is they were trying to ransom this group? Is that correct? Yeah, it sounded like that's what their way was. They like pulled all the data off and left files there. So I, I think what was interesting about this is if they remove the data, um, obviously SharePoint has ways to do revisioning. Maybe they were able to prevent that so they can they couldn't like revert it back to a previous state, but they basically pulled the data off so it's gone. Um, and then replaced with files so that they knew it was stolen. So it was like, yeah, almost like your traditional like thievery. They actually stole the data and it's not there anymore. You know, it's like replacing the uh, the gold with a rock or whatever the Indiana Jones yeah. is, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, with them having global access and global admin account, they could have just emailed everybody in AD, right? There's there's yeah. probably other ways to to let the whole organization know that they had been ransomed rather than just leaving text files and sharepoint. Something that you know, I'm thinking about as you're talking through just the global admin, I would hope that you know this is where it's always a good idea to provision specific accounts that are uh, exist for a purpose. And I wouldn't expect the global admin to be the account you use to provision accounts. You know, uh, I feel like you have to use a different type of administrative access or a, a account that can do that or whatever that is. So I feel like just seeing that behavior alone of a global admin making an account would be a something of interest to me, I would say. I mean, depending on how big the org is, I think. Yeah, um, I know. Right? And also, you know, account creation, that would be a flag. Like, oh, hey, somebody just created an account. I feel like we should be alerted, right? Uh, especially if you're not creating accounts every day and it's tied to, you know, potentially hiring or people coming on board, right? And then you see this account created out of nowhere and your admins know that they didn't do it should be a pretty immediate flag and alert to say we might need to look at some of this, right? But also the geolocation stuff and where people are logging in is really important because um, all that's typically logged and that visibility should be there across Microsoft's suite of products. So, but yeah, I, I think this is a, you know, really interesting on things people can do. I think it could have been a lot worse for that organization. Um, yeah. I mean, they could lock out everybody. And then if you're talking about an organization tied to a business that needs to, you know, make money, you shut down a whole business at that point. Nobody can log in across the board. Now you really have them listening. Right. So, um, there's a lot you could do there as well, but. Yeah. I mean, they gave themselves, uh, they, the new account, they gave themselves access for, you know, global administrator, but they also gave themselves ex exchange administrator and teams administrator. I'm assuming there's a lot of data they could have pulled elsewhere, um, even email data, if they really wanted to, um, I guess, extort better. So it's interesting that they just focus on the SharePoint side of things. I know SharePoint kind of backs up a lot of the other places, but uh, I think I didn't know if Exchange was backed up by SharePoint or that was kind of independent. 
think they're related pretty closely. Okay. Like if attachments and things like that, I didn't know how that would, I know in Teams files, those are really just SharePoint on the back end, but. Yep. No. Um, but it, it's always interesting looking at those type of articles and diving into those type of things because, yeah, that's a, that's a bad day for that organization. So. <laughs> Yeah, and it's interesting because I want to say normally when people uh, attack SharePoint, they attack the endpoint, and then when it syncs to SharePoint because they modify a file, that's how they ransom them. Um, mm -hmm. So it's kind of a completely different take on that approach. Obviously, they had a much easier time just getting access directly. So Great. No, I think that's a no. great week. Yeah. Maybe you have some things you want to, to chat through ahead of some events we have coming up. Yeah, so the, the big one that's really coming up is going to be June 28th. And if you're part of my LinkedIn network, I've already tried to send out invites. So if you didn't get an invite from me on LinkedIn, you should look me up on LinkedIn and connect. And uh, then I'll try to keep you up to date that way as well. Um, and I promise I only send one invite if I if I can control that so that I won't just flood you with random noise. But basically, it's going to be uh, threat hunting, shifting gears, and query tuning. And I'm going to be kind of doing a quick deep dive on, hey, how do I go from a hypothesis of a hunt and different ways I can either think about the hunt or different things I could possibly do to help get the results I'm looking for or understand the results I'm looking at. Um, and so it'd be a quick deep dive and, uh, should be a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully it goes well, you know, just, there might be some live stuff and you know, always know how that can go, but it's always fun to try. But with that, I just want to thank everyone for joining our out of the woods threat hunting podcast. Uh, looking forward to syncing back up next week. And with that, that closes our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of June 12th, 2023. All right. Have a good week. Happy hunting, everybody. Happy hunting. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, Check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.